The password is Big Blue Wrecking Crew. Hello, my name is Will, and you're listening to Exploding Helicopter, the podcast that likes to see its death blows delivered to helicopters. Now the term cinematic universe has become all the rage in recent years. This rather highfalutin concept is used by movie makers and nerdy film buffs to bundle together films and characters as a single coherent body of work. But long before Marvel's Avengers assembled or the fast teamed up the Furious, the makers of the American Ninja series were boldly expanding the cosmos of their stealth assassin franchise. After Michael Dudikoff, the star of American Ninja 1 and 2, declined to appear in a third outing, the series continued with a martial artist and actor David Bradley cast as the new lead. But when Mikey Dudd said he'd be up for donning his karate pyjamas one more time, producers decided to cross the streams and unite the two American Ninjas in a single film. So on this show, we're reviewing that historic moment when worlds and Bokken sticks collide by looking at American Ninja 4, The Annihilation. Given that we're talking of momentous cinematic team-ups, my guest today is a writer, producer and action movie aficionado. He's just published a book, Born to be Bad, all about the greatest villains in action cinema. Welcome to the show, Ty Singh. How are you doing? I'm good. Thanks for having me, Will. And uh, yeah, I'm glad that uh, you are able to uh, to join me on this show because, uh, yeah, you've just published this book, which is all about looking at the villains in uh, action movie cinema. And I think we've got a couple, if not three sort of villains in this movie that are quite interesting to look at. Oh, the villains in, in this film. <laughs> I definitely want to talk about the villains in this film. It's incredible. Uh, I mean, uh, should we just dive in? I think you have at least four yeah, actually, now you're talking about it, actually, there's probably four villains in this movie. I mean, it's a real plethora of them. And it's amazing who they decided to cast as villains to kind of go up against, let's just say, quite active martial artists. I mean, I felt the finale of this film essentially has David Bradley beating up a man in his late 60s. <laughs> That's in the uh, that's in the finest traditions of uh, of uh, many uh, many uh, action movies. But uh, let's uh, let's save the kind of the finer details of uh, American Ninja Four for our main discussion. But uh, as I've already mentioned, you're interested in villains, it seems, rather than heroes. So I wondered, kind of like, what drew you to uh, to this darker world? Sure. Uh, well, I, I've often found, I mean, growing up with these kind of films and the eighties action films in general is that when most of your budget is going towards Arnie or Stallone or Willis or, or whoever it might be, that means the producers and the directors often don't have that much more to go towards their bad guy. And that gives them the opportunity to take risks. And in some films, it pays off in spades. So in Die Hard, Alan Rickman, that was his first feature film. Mm. He was just uh, a well-established stage actor. They basically brought him on board, gave him carte blanche, and he created one of the most memorable villains of all time. Comparatively, in 80s films, the, the bad guys were often made up of well-respected British thespians, uh, big bodybuilders or powerlifters to represent a physical threat to your action heroes or you know just a mixture of martial artists as though that kind of style came into action films so whereas the heroes are generally quite cut and dry you know what you're getting i yeah. feel in action films there's just a whole wide range of bad guys and different types of bad guys from the big burly henchman to the mustache twirling big boss at the top <laughs> so that that's kind of why i wanted to write the book and to set out to interview all the actors that played all those different types of bad guys 
Well, you've mentioned some of the types of uh, villains that you you meet in these in these movies. So I wondered if you could sort of pick out some that are your your favourites. Growing up, I was watching action films like Beverly Hills Cop and things like that. And then there were actors like Ronnie Cox, who I grew up thinking were playing straight-laced police lieutenants like he does in Beverly Hills Cop. And, you know, musicians like in Deliverance. Mm. And he also plays the president of the United States in the canon film uh, Captain America. And then I think the first time I saw Robocop, I was like, hang on, this guy is normally playing upstanding police officers or military officers how is he suddenly being cast as a bad guy (laughs) and in robocop and total recall ronnie cox looks like he's having an absolute ball he (laughs) is chewing up the scenery with absolute delight so he was at the top of my list when i was trying to track down these actors to talk to and he did not disappoint he's actually um a folk musician these days really yeah when i spoke to him he had just got back from touring ireland uh, (laughs) with his band he basically just goes on the road uh singing wow music is actually his passion um i know he's currently touring in the states it's amazing so many of these actors you you have no idea what they're up to now and Mm. some of them weren't even actors so bringing it back to die hard alexander gudinoff um who plays carl he's tragically dead now but i spoke to andreas uh, venuski who played tony his brother in the film who's the first terrorist that bruce willis kills both of them were trained ballet dancers so they're not exactly who you think of when casting you know terrorists in action films you know, I was asking the questions that everyone wanted to know, such as how big are your feet? Because <laughs> Die Hard has disparaged the size of his feet for over 30 years. So uh, that was actually the first question uh, I asked. I was like, come on, let's let's get to the bottom of this now. How big are your feet? And can you reveal for uh, Exploding Helicopter listeners how big his feet really are? Are they bigger than Bruce Willis's grandma? Uh, I think it's Bruce Willis's sister. Bruce Willis's <laughs> sister must have ungodly sized feet for a woman. We'll leave it at that. We'll leave it at that. But clearly you're somebody who is immersed in the world of uh, action cinema. You know, I wanted to ask you as your as guest here, you know, what you think of uh, exploding helicopters in movies. I mean, have you even thought about them before? I have. And <laughs> let me tell you about what I feel is... Uh, when it comes to exploding helicopters, the scene that sticks in my mind, it's Predator. Oh, yeah. Because if Arnie didn't explode that helicopter, they could have all just flown out of there. But the whole thing about Predator is they have to get through the jungle because the canopy's too thick for them to kind of get uh, a rescue team in there to pick them up. But when they're doing the raid on that camp, two of the um, yeah. rebels try and take off in the helicopter and Arnie instead of just shooting them or taking them out the helicopter proceeds to just blow it up with his grenade launcher and therefore just removing their one chance of escape and every time I watch Predator it's like why why are you using the grenade launcher (laughs) on two pilots Mm. just shoot them or your Arnie rip off the door and punch them both or whatever it's a gratuitous use of an exploding helicopter but it's one that sticks in my mind. Um, however, like you said, as an aficionado of action films and general genre films, I think there is pretty much one film in five I watch probably has an exploding helicopter. What a life you must lead if 20% of the films you watch uh, have exploding helicopters in. Uh, 
the thing is, it's uh, an unfortunate professional uh, issue. So I also run something called the Bristol Bad Film Club, where once a month we show a genre or cult film that is generally so bad it's great. And we um, donate all the money from our screenings to a different charity. And it's amazing how many films make use out of model helicopters to blow up. <laughs> Uh, one of our favorite filmmakers is Andy Sidaris. Oh, yeah. Who uh, created the Babes, Bombs and Bullets franchise, which is basically hire a bunch of Playboy bunnies, put them in tight fitting outfits, give them guns and get them to shoot things and jiggle a bit. <laughs> and uh, so one of his films, Hard Ticket to Hawaii, just features Playboy bunnies with rocket launchers. I, there is, I think, at least one helicopter is taken out in that film, as well as a giant cancer-giving toxic snake that is also blown up with a rocket launcher. That film is insane. Uh, that's right. And uh, also, uh, alongside the uh, the helicopter and the snake, sadly, a uh, inflatable sex doll also gets taken out by a rocket launcher in that movie. So it's a that's real correct. It, yeah. The body count in that in that film is just brutal. <laughs> Okay, I think it's time to get stuck into American Ninja 4. So let's listen to its truly great trailer. We only have a few days before the media gets a hold of this. Then all hell will break loose. Michael Dudikoff. David Bradley. Together, for the first time, American Ninja 4, The Annihilation. When the enemy is ruthless... This is not a game. Those were ninja. Merciless. Cut the slime down like Doug, you understand? And holds the world hostage. It has enough power to blow New York off the face of the earth. It takes more than courage. I got a bad feeling about this, Sean. You need the power of an American ninja. If you can get us to the Dragon Fort, you may have a chance. Twice the speed. Twice the skill. Four times as deadly. <laughs> Michael Dudikoff, David Bradley, American Ninja 4, The Annihilation. American Ninja 4, The Annihilation, came out in 1990. A renegade British army officer and a militant Muslim sheikh plan to blow up New York with a nuclear bomb. While they engineer their scheme, the unlikely duo, who have as much in common as Larry David and Osama Bin Laden, hide out in a secret base in Africa, surrounded by an army of highly trained ninjas, as you do. Desperate to stop radioactive Armageddon, the US government sends in a team of special forces. They're promptly captured, so Uncle Sam sends in another team, this time led by David Bradley. But when he too is captured, the military top brass have no alternative but to send for Michael Dudikoff. Alongside Michael Dudikoff and David Bradley, we have uh, British character actor James Booth, who is perhaps best known for playing Private Hook in Zulu. Curiously, Booth also penned the script for this film, which, if you're familiar with his career, is very peculiar. The film was directed by Cedric Sundstrom, who helmed American Ninja 3, Blood Hunt. It has a 28% rating on Rotten Tomatoes and a score of just 3.8% on IMDb. So with all that out the way, uh, 
What did you make of uh, American Ninja 4, Ty? Well, I'm actually a big fan of the American Ninja franchise, and I actually own the uh, box set. So when you asked me to talk about this film, I was very happy as it gave me a chance to go back and revisit the franchise. But I have to say, of all the uh, American Ninja films, this is probably my least favorite. Oh, really? And, and I know that the teaming up of Michael Dudikoff and David Bradley should be something akin to Batman and Superman teaming up, but you know, <laughs> in the canon films universe. But I, I have one overriding problem with this film and that is there is no steve james mm. and steve james plays uh, jackson in the franchise arguably a much better martial artist than both dudikoff and bradley i might be upsetting a few people with that comment but <laughs> that man is pure unadulterated charisma yeah and in the first two films it's his chemistry between uh with uh, Jackson and Joe that sell the film. And when Michael Dudikoff doesn't return for the third film, he's put up against David Bradley. And again, he's doing a lot of the heavy lifting because with all due respect to Dudikoff and David Bradley, they're not the most charismatic actors. So Steve James is always the most interesting thing to watch on screen. And he just brings the laughs with his kind of, oh, ninjas exasperation <laughs> as a man who has had to gone through this three times so the problem is when you've got michael dudikoff and david bradley acting uh against each other and there's no one of steve off. levels charm there for them to bounce off it's really stilted mm. and really horrible to watch and i don't know who Carl braxton is um <laughs> david bradley's friend who he's best man for at the wedding but all I could keep thinking was, where's Steve James? Where's Jackson? This film needs more Jackson. And that is probably why it would fall to the bottom of the list for me in terms of the American Ninja films. Well, it is a very good point you make about your Steve James being missing from this movie. And uh, I don't quite know why he is uh, absent from this particular uh, entry in the series, because, you know, as you mentioned, you know, there is a essentially a kind of Steve James surrogate in uh, this uh, Carl character who is in this movie. So it's not as if there wasn't sort of structurally within the script a, a role for him to play. I mean, there, there clearly was. But uh, I think I'm a, I am a bit warmer on this on this film than you, because uh, it is in many ways. I ha even I have to confess that this is the weakest film in the series. I mean, it, it is not a good film. However, I do find it a wildly entertaining film. And, you know, if you have watched canon movies you know, from the 80s, there is a certain sort of wackiness to those films. And this one is about as wacky as they come. But the goofiness is completely unironic. And I really, I kind of think that you have to be very cold hearted if you if that doesn't win you over, uh, you know, because you're just watching a film where people are just trying to make an entertaining movie. And, you know, despite all of the obvious problems, I actually really do quite like American Ninja 4. I was laughing a lot through this film <laughs> for several reasons, which we'll get into. But I do have a theory about why Steve James might not be in this ah. film. And it is simply a theory of mine that I thought of while I was watching it. And I have no idea if it's based in any sort of reality. But my theory is 
This film was made in 1990 and it was clearly filmed in South Africa. Yes. So the apartheid government's still in effect. And I think Steve James was just like, no, I'm not going. That's my theory. And Dwayne uh, Alexander, who plays Carl Braxton, was drafted in as the expert marksman who cannot hit three ninjas standing right in front of him. <laughs> uh, I, that, that's my theory about why Steve James isn't in the film. I don't know if it's true. You could well imagine, given the politics of that particular time, and I'm certainly I'm I'm old enough to uh, remember the you know the apartheid era and the uh, the kind of the boycotts that existed around the world against South Africa at that time. Yeah, it wouldn't um, wouldn't be at all surprising if that was the reason that Steve James decided, um, assuming that he was even offered, it wouldn't be surprising at all if that was the reason that he wasn't involved in this uh, this particular this particular movie. I'd be very surprised if they didn't ask him to come back. However, it is a canon film. They are famously very cheap. And another part of it could be if they were bringing back Dudikoff mm. and Bradley, that is where their budget went. <laughs> and um, reading up about this film, it's very interesting that David Bradley apparently wanted him and Dudikoff's character to team up throughout the film. And Dudikoff allegedly wanted his character joe to save the day and as such you have a film of two very distinct halves david bradley sean davidson going in trying to save the day failing and then just being captured and then joe having to come in team up with a bunch of extras from mad max and (laughs) (laughs) and roll in save the day and because of that it feels incredibly disjointed i mean you you want your heroes to team up from the beginning and if one of them's captured the other one save the day not like not here is your hero he has failed we're just going to have to draft in another hero that you might remember from two films ago although to be fair if you're a fan of the american ninja films you you want dudikoff to return yeah i mean i think you make a very good point about this the structure of this movie it does feel very very lumpy for exactly the reason that you say the the kind of the excitement the anticipation of going in to watch this movie is to see the kind of the two stars of this this franchise work together but they don't ever really work together and as you say david bradley really gets the uh, the rough end of the stick in this particular deal because uh, yeah he's the one who gets to gets to be captured in the first half of the film and again at the end of the film he then gets to uh, to beat up a, a 60 year old pensioner whilst uh, dukov takes on the sort of the elite super ninja um that is uh, part of the villains uh, sort of army of henchmen so yeah bradley does seem to get the real rough end of the stick on this film i'm wondering if it's a sort of vin diesel dwayne the rock johnson situation <laughs> uh the the two of them just couldn't stand each other and therefore they couldn't share a scene together apart from that really disjointed fight where it's a ninja wearing a mask of sean yeah. And they just have that fight scene. And even then, when I was watching it, I was like, that's not Michael Dudikoff. That is a stunt double right there. His face was in shadow. So part of me all the way through was, did these two not get on? Because they barely share a scene together. And if it unavoidable, then they're there in the same shot. Otherwise, they barely say a word to each other. Mm. They weren't even friends in the previous film. So now it just seems like, that's tagged on for no real reason but yeah david bradley really does kind of get shafted in this film and he kills 
uh, James Booth's character by essentially kicking him through a table, and then it appears James Booth dies of a heart attack. Um, <laughs> it's while D, uh, Michael Dudikoff is fighting uh, a cross between a ninja and an extra from Excalibur uh, who works at Medieval <laughs> Times. Uh, the Super Ninja. Well, I've got a completely unsubstantiated uh, theory of my own, which oh, is that, which is that um, David Bradley is a is a martial artist um, in his own right. Uh, yeah. Whilst Michael, whilst Michael Dudikoff, whilst he fronts obviously a, a martial arts franchise, he famously didn't know martial arts at all. And, you know, despite that, he was uh, recruited into the lead role in the American Ninja franchise. And so I wonder if Dudikoff was, you know, a little bit embarrassed because he doesn't want to be, you know, shown up with somebody who actually knows how to do a roundhouse kick. It's an interesting theory, but he clearly didn't seem to have that issue with Steve James. Well, the difference is that David Bradley obviously had become the American Ninja that's in, true in yeah. the third film so whilst steve james is always in that buddy role so maybe my kind of my idea is that uh dudikoff felt you know a bit insecure that uh you know here you know here's somebody actually this you know this actual martial artist has come in taken the lead role in the series and you know here i am uh sort of now playing i guess catch up in the franchise that i created it would be fascinating to find out but i don't think any of them would ever confirm or deny anything one way or another unfortunately um but yeah it's a fascinating film and talking about the villains if james booth did write this i have to question the scene where his character is just groping uh the character of sarah that that is awful i don't know what is going on there it was horrible to watch I mean, it's a canon film, so there's always some sort of titillation or nudity, but mm. it, it wasn't even in there for that reason. It it was awful. And like you said, I mean, James Booth is best known for playing Hook in Zulu, so I knew him for that. But watching him in this film, he was hamming it up to the nines. It it was... Oh, this film was insane. And don't even get me started on Rong Smurzak in Brownface as an Arab. <laughs> I know that man, South African. I've seen him in Jackie Chan's Who Am I? You are not Arab, sir. Well, let's look in a little bit more detail at the villains in this movie. And um, there's an awful lot of uh, villains and, and henchmen in this particular movie. So we've we've got this Arab. I guess he's kind of the I guess he's the sort of the money man. behind The money. This, yeah. Yeah. He's the money behind this operation. We've got James Booth, who is this sort of disaffected British army officer who's now sort of hell bent on seemingly revenge against the world. I, he seems to be, I guess, the brains of the operation. You then have this super ninja character and you also then have this sort of local police chief who this the, who the is, lackey guy who yeah. looks like joseph goebbels exactly the sort yeah. of you know the kind of the the villain's lickspittle uh who is uh yeah just sort of there to to do their bidding and I, I mean i think that adds to frankly the sort of you know you've got rather fuzzy goals and aims for these villains and you've then just got Frankly, probably a few too many of them. I think, you know, some combination of James Booth and or the Super Ninja would probably be enough for this movie. Yeah, I agree. I think the scene that both that the best kind of summed up Booth's character in that he doesn't know what he wants is where he goes into the cell with a bullwhip and goes up to the Delta Force guys and goes, lick my boot. <laughs> and the soldier... <laughs> 
doesn't do anything. <laughs> James Booth gets a ball whip, hits him once. The guy still doesn't do anything. And then he just gets one of his guards to grab his head and just shove it on his boots to lick his boot. So the whole thing is you haven't broken this guy <laughs> in the slightest. You've just forced him to do what you want. He's still as defiant as ever. Mm. And you put about as much effort into breaking him. Well, you put no effort into breaking him whatsoever. You hit him once. So that entire just scene summed up for me kind of how bad and how lack of a plan his character actually had. And yeah, it was just downright terrible. But then just before that, you had a very touching scene where uh, two of the Delta Force guys clasped hands and looked into each other's (laughs) eyes. And I genuinely just wanted them to kiss and make out. I thought, check this out. This is a canon film. This is very progressive. We have two very butch but gay Delta Force guys here who are clearly in love with each other. And that love story went nowhere. That that was disappointing. (laughs) Well, of the villains, it seems to be that James Booth is perhaps the most three-dimensional of this particular film. And probably is no coincidence that he also wrote the script, albeit uh, under a pseudonym. And because he does seem to have all of the best lines in this particular movie. So uh, there's a there's a, a kind of a great line in this movie where, uh, uh, you know, kind of Michael Dudikoff had sort of stolen some secret plans dressed as a priest. And uh, oh, suddenly, God, yeah. suddenly everyone realizes, oh, my goodness, how can how can that have happened? Because, uh, you know, James Booth just sort of says, oh, you know, are you mad you know there are no bloody priests you know i shot them all months ago and uh you know none of the none of the other sadly none of the other villains in this this film really get quite the look in that uh that he gets and uh, you have to think that that is largely down to the fact that uh, he seemed to well he seemed to be in charge of writing the script of this movie he definitely dialed it up to 11 there's that bit where <laughs> they hear dudikoff in the tunnels and he just goes what's that noise they're in the tunnels damn it and just start screaming. And I was like, oh, James, you are having an off day today. This is awful. But damn it, you're trying. Yeah, he's giving it all. I don't know why. <laughs> why he ended up writing it. <laughs> Did he just go, you know, what? I fancy a free trip to South Africa. Relive uh, my Zulu days because Zulu was filmed there. God knows what yeah. happened. But it, yeah, there were some interesting choices going on from him. Well, he does bizarrely um if you look at his cv in the kind of mid to late 80s he does actually sort of turn up writing quite a few scripts for canon movies and it's such you know if you look at his cv and you look at the writing stuff on there and you just think what was going on in his world in his life that uh you know somebody who'd made a, a living basically in front of the camera suddenly in the kind of mid 80s starts penning scripts for canon movies it's so so peculiar but uh sadly he's somebody who uh he died uh good i think 15 20 years ago so we're sadly not going to get uh, the answer to that question but it's yeah it's very peculiar the uh career arc of uh, james booth i mean it's after canon were throwing lots of money around i mean that really happened in like 86 87 with masters of the universe and superman 4 so maybe for him, Canon was just a regular source of income. Well, let's have a look at uh, some of the action sequences uh, in this movie. And, uh, you know, this film ends with one of the most surreal sequences I think I've, I've seen in 
maybe any action movie because uh, you know there's been some pretty bizarre instances in the American Ninja series as a whole um, and certainly there are some bizarre moments in the uh, in American Ninja 4 but uh, this the the kind of the finale of this film involves uh, you know Michael Dudikoff recruiting what are according to the script a kind of a bunch of ex-prisoners who are now sort of just sort of living out of some sort of former quarry but these ex-prisoners they basically look like they're refugees from uh, the Mad Max series and so Dudikov teams up with them and you know they kind of storm the uh, the ninja's base at the end of this movie so this this film sort of you know takes a very bizarre sort of turn almost into the into the realms of science fiction with these uh, you know Mad Max extras kind of uh, you know turning up as a, a kind of impromptu uh, army to work alongside Dudikov they don't even look like people from this world they look like they have just walked off a mad max film and that's bizarre because the whole mad max influence was over by 1990 uh beyond Mm. thunderdome had come and gone you know duran duran's wild boys video was (laughs) god knows how old by this so it's so weird i mean canon weren't above ripping stuff off to make a quick buck i mean i grew up watching their version of king solomon's minds with richard chamberlain and it's such a clear cash in on raiders of the lost ark i was blatantly aware aware of that as a seven-year-old but to suddenly kind of throw in a bit of a mad max influence in the american ninja series is just bizarre and the whole end series where they're smashing through the gate while michael dudikoff is taking so long to free the prisoners he takes so long one of them is burnt to death i was when that was happening i was like come on and now he's gonna fire something and free their hands but he's just there walking as slowly as possible down the stairs and a man dies because he can't put a little bit of pace into what he's doing it's the whole the whole end scene is crazy and then he fights uh, the super ninja kicks him into a bunch of crates that randomly explode. It was fantastic. The only explanation I can think of for the for the sort of bizarre Mad Max influence, and I, you know, I'd need to go back and look at the canon filmography, is maybe at the same time they just shot a some sort of post-apocalyptic type movie, and you know they had the leftover set, they had the leftover costumes, and they just thought, hey. Let's just sort of write it into uh, American Ninja 4 and we can, you know, in that classic sort of Roger Corman way of, um, yeah. you know, reusing sets, reusing bits of film that you'd shot for another movie. That would not surprise me. And that probably makes a lot of sense. Uh, yeah, you're probably right. Well, I think that that is uh, probably as good a place to uh, wrap up our main discussion of American Ninja 4. Now, it wouldn't be the Exploding Helicopter podcast if we didn't talk about the Exploding Helicopter in this film. But before we do that, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, We'll be back in a minute. Jordan, what? I want to watch a movie. I want to play some fucking tunes. I want to watch a movie. I want to play tunes. Movie. Music. Movie. Music. Movie. Music. All right, fine, fine, fine. How about this? We will watch a movie, all right? Okay. Talk about that movie, and then we will listen to the soundtrack that went with that movie, and then talk about that as well. Okay. Does that sound good? Yeah. All right. So join us every episode on Screen Chats. You can check us out on iTunes. 
go to our site, uh, screentracks.net. That's uh, screen, C-S-C-R-E-E-N-T-R-A-X.net. Uh, join us for every episode. We hope you can join us, and we'll have a lot of fun, all right? Yes, we will. All right. We're back, and now we're looking at the exploding helicopter action. Despite so many films demonstrating their dangers, helicopters remain a curiously popular getaway vehicle amongst villains. And we're given another illustration of that point here. So as his plan falls to pieces, the evil Sheikh attempts to abscond in a chopper. As battle rages across his fortress, one of the rebels shoulders an RPG and fires it at the Whirlybird, striking its target. The doomed helicopter explodes in a fiery eruption ty what did you make of the exploding helicopter action well i mean i was surprised that the man who shoots down the helicopter was carl um (laughs) who has so far you know not showcased the marksman abilities that we've been told so much but here he is with a big grenade launcher fires it straight into the helicopter it explodes gloriously and in what is clearly a model shot you can see part of the fuselage just kind of hanging from a wire Still in midair before they cut away too quickly. I thought it beautifully defined canon filmmaking. It was cheap, to the point, and explosive. Yeah, I think you uh, describe it very well because this uh, this really isn't uh, the finest hour in the exploding uh, helicopter helicopter mini genre. Yeah, as you say, it is a very uh, it's a very cheap looking uh, scene. There's a very massive close up of the uh, model exploding. Presumably, you know that close up is is there really to disguise the the kind of the fact that this is uh, not a real helicopter uh, blowing up uh, in any way. It's there to disguise the limitations of the uh, special effects uh, budget. Although the after the um, after the the kind of the frame filling explosion, there is we, we do get to see the the sort of the wreckage um, spin round. Um, it's very clear at that moment that this is a model helicopter and a bit of string because no fuselage which has just been exploded would spin around in this uh, particularly <laughs> curious way unless yeah it was a model that was dangling on a bit of string somewhere. Yes, it was crazy. And like you said, it was up close. It was a tight shot, so you couldn't see the model before it exploded. I'm just trying to think, because the first American Ninja film, they blow up a helicopter as well, don't they? They do indeed. Yeah, uh, I think it's just another one of those cases where... Uh, as the sequels, they made more and more sequels, the budget just reduced and reduced because it's ridiculous. Yeah, the the one in the first American Ninja movie, uh, Steve James takes it out with a, a rocket launcher. And um, oh, it, Steve James. Yeah, oh, Steve James. We go, go. We shouldn't we shouldn't do that to ourselves, Ty, because I know. Uh, you know we're just uh, we're just going to go off on another reverie about uh, about the the great Steve James. But the man uh, was taken from this world too soon. He was indeed, and uh, yeah, he's got some. Um, uh, you know what? Because there isn't really that much to say about this particular exploding helicopter, if truth be told because it's not really that interesting so i'm, I'm just gonna i'm gonna take a blatant little detour and uh, if you want to see steve james working alongside michael dudikoff outside of the american ninja films then you should go and check out uh Ave- is it avenging force oh, it's it is out. it's avenging force yeah avenging by uh, force. sam furstenberg who's yes. the first american ninja and james Booth's in that as well because it's kind of it's kind of hard target isn't it it's kind of hard target before hard target yeah, so it's um, definitely like uh, the most dangerous game, that mm. Jim Carter, man-hunting man. 
you know, it has Steve James to make up for it. But like you said, um, yeah, James Booth is in that one as well. So it ties it all nicely together. <laughs> so I think uh, I think probably our concluding point is uh, if you uh, if you like Dudikoff, if you like Steve James, then definitely go away and watch uh, Avenging Horse. You know what? I think it's time to wrap up this episode. Ty, would you like to take a moment to tell people where they can find your book uh, and just generally keep track of uh, what you're up to online? Sure. So you can find me on Twitter at Timon Singh. It's Simon, but with a T and then Singh, S-I-N-G-H. Um, I'm also on Twitter as the Bristol Bad Film Club, which is the other BBFC. Uh, you can buy my book, Born to be Bad, talking to the greatest villains in action cinema, wherever you buy books from, most likely Amazon or also from the publishers, Bear Manor Media. Um, and I'm currently producing uh, an action film called In Search of the Last Action Heroes, which is about the rise and fall of the 80s action genre i'm making that with youtuber oliver harper and you can back the project on indiegogo uh, we just had a really successful campaign on kickstarter uh, and we're just trying to get a little bit more money so we can do some more interviews and then i'm off to la in october to get the first of those done so yeah ty thanks so much for joining me and uh yeah thanks for uh, sharing your uh, your love and your passion for the uh, american ninja series Oh, thanks for having me, Will. If there's a Dudikoff film to talk about, I'll be there. <laughs> as always, don't forget to check out the Exploding Helicopter website, where we've got hundreds of reviews as well as facts and stats on helicopter explosions in film. If you like what we do, then make sure you tell your friends, your enemies, even random people you meet on the street. We'll be back soon. But until then, keep watching the skies for those exploding helicopters. This podcast is a proud member of the Lamb Podcasting Network. Find the network at largeassmovieblogs.com. What the hell is going on, Gavin? Carl? Carl is not a field operative. You haven't read his file. I have. He came top of his class. A brilliant linguist, a superb marksman. He's the best trained operator we have. He's also a fantastic bowler, but this is not a game, Gavin. Those were ninja.